The reason that Singapore has invested so much in its technology infrastructure is because it's a small country and because when it started off, you know, 50 years ago, it's a relatively new country. It did not have much infrastructure and it knew that it needed to invite talent and wealth and capital to actually be able to have a standing and be competitive in the world around it. So therefore, I think it made a lot of investment in infrastructure and people so that it could be the hub of many industries as it is right now. Hey guys, before we get started, I want to tell you about today's show sponsor, Carta. Carta simplifies how startups manage equity, track cap tables, and get valuations. Go to carta.com slash syndicate to get 10% off and learn more about how they can help you with managing your complicated cap table and keeping investors happy. And before we get started, guys, a quick, exciting announcement. We're doing a raffle giveaway this week with Bruce Shire's book, Click Here to Kill Everybody. It's all about security and survival in this hyper-connected world. The internet's powerful, but it's certainly not safe. In this book, a look from smart cars to thermostats, autonomous driving, trading stocks, drones equipped with their own behavioral algorithms, and much, much more to see how the computerization of everything is affecting our future. It's got rave reviews and you guys can enter today at disruptors.fm slash Bruce, that's B-R-U-C-E, to win a signed copy from Bruce Shire, the one, the only, who's been on the podcast. It was an incredibly popular episode, one that Corey Doctorow loved, according to his review of the book, Financial Times as well. This is one I definitely recommend checking out, guys, because this is so much of what will define our future, and Bruce is the leader when it comes to internet security and IoT. Disruptors.fm slash Bruce. You got to register before March 11th. There's no purchase necessary. You can enter your email address, subscribe on YouTube, follow us on Twitter. There's a lot of different ways to enter, and we'll pick a winner. If it's you, you'll get a free signed copy of Bruce's book. Again, that's disruptors.fm slash Bruce. And if you're too late for this, we might have another giveaway happening in the future. So if this is after March 11th and you're listening, go to disruptors.fm slash giveaway. And if we have a Ralph going on, then awesome. You can register for that one and probably still win or probably still have the opportunity to win a different but yet equally incredible book, disruptors.fm slash giveaway. Do you meditate? I know I do. And we've talked about it a ton on the podcast. The benefits are enormous. We had Ariel Garten on the program a while back, and she founded this company called Muse. They make a neurofeedback, i.e. brain sensing device that helps meditators, anyone really, learn to control their mind and quiet their thoughts. The science is great, and neurofeedback helps meditators achieve zen-level results in less time. I'm a big fan of meditation, as you guys probably know, and Muse is hooking listeners up with 15% off when they use our link. Disruptors.fm slash Muse. That's M-U-S-E. Disruptors.fm slash Muse. If you want to take your meditation and mind to the next level. And now, let's get on with the program. Welcome to The Disruptors, the podcast about the future of all of us, where we look at the technologies, trends, and societal norms shaping our collective future. Hear the world's top minds share their insights and predictions on the convergence, direction, and ethics of exponential technologies transforming life as we know it. You can learn more and stay up to date at disruptors.fm. 
On this podcast, we do our best to bring you the creators and innovators that are changing the world. Today, we've got someone who is definitely doing that, and she's working with government and with private enterprise to really do that and push the envelope on smart cities, on AI, on education, and much, much more. Today, we've got Dr. Aisha Khan on the program. She's the co-founder and CEO of Addo AI, an artificial intelligence firm and incubator. They're named one of the top four AI companies in Asia. And she's been a strategic advisor on AI, smart cities, and fintech for a number of different leading corporations and governments. She's worked very closely with Singapore's government, working with the largest public transport company, SMRT, Singtel, Singapore's largest telco, and Japan's largest insurance company. And she's been working around the world to bring a lot of these topics into the foreground, so to speak, to get people and governments focused on ways that they can improve. She's the co-author of Hybrid Reality, Thriving in the Emerging Human Technology Civilization. She's been published or quoted in most major publications, spoken at TEDx. She's also the founder of 21C Girls, a charity that delivers free coding and artificial intelligence classes to girls in Singapore, is on the board for Humanity Plus, is a faculty advisor at Singularity University. In today's episode, we're going to discuss how Singapore's government operates more like a startup to promote innovation and what other governments around the world can learn from that, the future of smart cities and why it may be citizen-centric, why data privacy and governmental policies are so important for the future of all of us, the ways changing the transportation systems will affect our physical cities beyond what's normally discussed, why the future will increasingly be defined by the East, and why Aisha's an optimist and more than a little worried about AI in society. And now, without further ado, I give you Aisha Khanna. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. You're dealing with a pretty cool world, though. I wanted to, I wanted to talk a little bit about that. So can you quickly give us the 30,000 overfoot view, 30,000 foot view of your career and how you got here, how you started advising governments, talking about AI, talking about the future of cities? Right. So I basically, you know, have had a long career in technology. I started off as a software engineer on Wall Street, working on trading systems and was able to work with quants and other statistical analysts on how to do analytics on financial data and then work with the risk management people on how to analyze it. And so I spent a lot of years moving around in different banks and seeing all the ways. And and Wall Street was one of the first places where a lot of investment was made in analytics, in computational power. So after that, I became very interested in not only how it affects financial markets or the productivity of people and banks, but also in terms of how it affects us as human beings. So I started looking more at cities with rapid urbanization happening around the world. It was extremely important that we don't have this issue of not being aware of how technology affects all of us. And so I went on and did a PhD in smart cities and mobility, and uh, which is transportation, and then moved to Singapore. And upon coming to Singapore, where, you know, many people consider it the smartest city in the world, because technology is so much a part of not only how the city is built from an infrastructure perspective, but the emphasis the government gives to the skills and the development of talent of its citizens, preparing them for the fourth industrial revolution. That was a perfect place for me to then start my own 
company that did what I had been doing all along, which was a lot of kind of computational analytics, artificial intelligence, etc. And um, and I but I and I went out and partnered with some of the leading AI minds in Asia. And that's kind of fast forward to where I am right now, which is we've been doing this for over two years, have a lot of great clients doing some very interesting work, and hopefully in the process, democratizing access to many of the services in Asia that that are not affordable, but now hopefully can be education, healthcare, public housing, transportation uh, through artificial intelligence. How much of the change that you made in your career would you attribute to wanting to make a shift? Did you have like a semi-mid-career realization that what you were doing was arbitrage and you wanted to focus on improvement? What was it? No, I think that the shift really was that I began to literally see technology moving faster than than I or anybody else had imagined. So very quickly, we began to see that cloud was coming, that computation was increasing uh, in its power, and that technology was becoming infused in many different industries, not just the ones that we were in, not just in tech and not just in financial services and tech, but even more traditional industries. And when that started happening, because my background is not only in math and statistics, but it's also in human rights, it's also in development economics, it was very natural for me to ponder beyond the business on what impact it would have on society. And I think one of the best things that I did mid-career was to decide to start a PhD. It was a very difficult and long process, but I worked on it. And the good part about a PhD is that it really helps you critically evaluate assumptions um, and critically evaluate the impact and the implications of whatever you do in technology on individuals and society. So I think that that has really transformed who I am. And I feel like I need to think through both the yin and the yang of technology, which I really enjoy now. What drives you? Where did you grow up? I want to say that you you grew up somewhere not economically superpower-ish and that that probably shaped you. Absolutely. Uh, so I grew up in Pakistan and, you know, there's a lot of poverty in Pakistan, but there's also enormous optimism as the middle class is emerging, as education is becoming more prevalent. <clears throat> there are 100 million people in Pakistan under the age of 35. And that's what you see across Asia, India included, where there's so much youth, all of whom are now just beginning to enter the the economy. And so I grew up looking at both the potential of those people and also looking at the extreme injustice and in inequity of the lack of opportunities that they deserve but didn't have. And when I moved to America and then England and now Singapore, all of these countries, my journey through all of them empowered me further through my learnings and the career that I had to hopefully make an impact on where I started with a really good team. So you brought up Singapore in, in that it's really the most urbanized or smart of the, the cities today. Why is that? And why did you choose Singapore initially? The reason that Singapore has invested so much in its technology infrastructure is because it's a small country. And because when it started off, you know, 50 years ago, it's a relatively new country. It did not have much infrastructure and it knew that it needed to invite talent and wealth and capital to actually be able to have a standing and be competitive in the world around it. So therefore, I think it made a lot of investment in infrastructure and people so that it could be the hub of many industries as it is right now. So you, you choose Singapore, but you must choose. 
choose it before you really realize it what what it is and how it is. What exactly brought you there? Um, Singapore. My husband had been studying Singapore for a very long time, and he had even written、uh, several books that reference Singapore and the meritocracy in Singapore, the investment in technology in Singapore, and its prime position as the gateway to Asia. These three things we knew because I had been listening to him, and he had been visiting the country a lot, and he had a lot of people that he knew there. When we decided to move from the west to the east, we wanted to both experience for our families and our children Asia because I hadn't lived in Asia for a long time, and also to capitalize on the interesting opportunities that the growth in Asia presented. In that sense, Singapore was the best place to be. But even though I moved to Singapore from a very pragmatic perspective, I really fell in love with the country. Have a huge respect and admiration for what the country stands for. And given that I have a charity even now that teaches girls coding, I'm very, very fond of the young people in Singapore as well. So it's very much become a home after six and a half years here. Singapore, in a lot of ways, is the anti-China, but in a lot of ways, it's very similar. They have the strong centralized government. They have a very strong focus on the initiatives they want to achieve. And they achieve them, yet they seemingly do it in ways that feel different. Why is that? Well, I think that I can't speak about China that much because I don't know the exact way in which the government operates. But I do know how the Singapore government does it because I was when after I came over here, I was invited to participate in a group called Aspire, and the committee was. Um, involve many thought leaders, heads of companies, heads of education institutes, and government agencies, and their job was to imagine the future of skills and how they could prepare Singapore for it. And I saw firsthand a couple of things. First, how the government really learns from other countries around the world. So we went and visited Switzerland, we visited Germany, we visited、uh, many other countries to see how they had. Implemented kind of skills training in their very educational framework. It also consults its citizens more and more. And throughout the entire tenure of that committee, which was about eight months, the entire committee, including the minister of education and the senior minister of state, they all went to all the different colleges to meet with the parents and the students. To discuss with them what they thought the future skills would be, what were the challenges they faced, and how what were the changes they would like to see to prepare their kids and themselves for the future. And、um, and then the other thing is the third and final thing is consultation,、um, you know, awareness and education. But the third thing is action. And once the committee had come up with a set of metrics that it wanted to execute, it began to, in a very agile and a very techy way, to be honest, in a very agile way, start to put them. Place and at each you know time they iteratively improve the process again through feedback from the users in which case these are the citizens through、uh, continually building on a base that they formed and I really enjoyed that process I enjoyed being part of it and enjoyed seeing the efficiency and empathy with which they rolled it out after we had finished our findings so I think that in that sense it's、um, it's a smaller country so it's easier for it to also Deploy some of its initiatives, and I think that that's why it feels like it's more inclusive. And more than anything else, Singapore is most reliant realistically on its talent and on its people, and so they are very much part of what drives its future. And in that sense, it is a smart city, but it is more a human-centric smart city because even though it's known for focusing. 
on technology, actually its focus is much more now on being a smart nation that is about the economy, about skills, about taking care of the elderly and about a quality of life that's very important and the sustainability to that that's very important for all. Is that only doable with a small country model? Is that what we inevitably have to head towards? You know, I think it really helps to have a small country, which is why a lot of people, including my husband, who's written several books about that, emphasize cities and the fact that since Singapore is a city-state, it is actually able to achieve quite a bit. And when you have very large countries, then the city becomes very important in owning the responsibility and the budget and the policy and the infrastructure for making the lives of citizens better. Because it is a smaller scale and because there is, I guess, less political disruption between different levels of government. It's more effective in that sense. So I think there is some truth to that, yes. Hey, you can definitely see it. China is the only one that really can compare just because they're able to set down a, a verdict and essentially go with it across the country. In a lot of places, that's very hard just given the size and politics. What do you uh, What do you think the future of smart cities is? Talk a little bit about how things are working today in Singapore. Because I think Singapore is a, it is a looking ball to the future, so to speak. But we're also going in increasingly interesting directions. So where do you see us 5, 10 years, 20 years down the road? I think Singapore made a shift a few years ago to call itself a smart nation. And I think it did that specifically because it wanted to expand the conversation around smart cities and stop it from being so technocentric. Even though the foundation is technology, it wanted it to move towards a bigger notion of a smart city, which is also has um, features that are economic, features that are related to sustainability, and features that are related to human skill and human talent development. So I think that's a very interesting model. I see more cities, even like Dubai, is trying to move much more to that as well. Um, a couple of things are interesting, I think. One is that uh, there is this idea that the government has to itself, like it has to put its money where its mouth is. In other words, it itself needs to be efficient, integrated, have governance over its data, be able to, instead of mandating and expecting it from the private sector only, should itself function as an entity that's smart. And so what we saw is, for example, it started something called GovTech in Singapore. And GovTech is really an internal agency for the rest of all the agencies to help them become more efficient, to give more personalized and centralized and valuable information, the right information at the right time to its citizens. Another thing that we notice is that they their emphasis is very much about helping small and medium enterprises. So not only does it help its individual companies, but it is trying to build an, an infrastructure that makes it easier for small companies to get on the cloud, for small countries to become digitized. And all of these things happen quite systematically. What I'm saying right now doesn't sound futuristic, but actually I think this is the right conversation. Instead of us all jumping towards this Jetsons future where we all live in the matrix and are being spied upon, I actually think this is the right way, step by step, to empower everyone. The third thing is that there's this really keen uh, and important emphasis now on data governance. How should you protect your data, citizen data, and other data, but also how should you govern it as, as a country? And those are early conversations. 
It has a committee on ethics that is just set up as well. So um, these are some of the things that are happening from the technological perspective. Then, of course, a smart city is just not digital, right? You are building things, you're urbanizing. So some of the new townships that are built, being built in Singapore are being built in a way that are uh, mixed use and are more inclusive of all parts of society. So Singapore is a rapidly aging society and they have discovered that a lot of elderly people, you know, you can make their home as smart as you want. And yes, if they fall on the carpet and it has a sensor, it'll call the doctor. But when they uh, are alone, that's another reason why people die early. So how do you combat loneliness? That's not a technical solution to that, right? Only. So they are now developing townships, which where old people's homes, they may be smart inside, but outside they open into gardens and are near nurseries, not isolated away somewhere far away, and are near innovation hubs and are near student uh, lodgings. And I think that's a wonderful way to actually look at architecture and urban design and integrate that with the concept of smart city as well. And there's a lot of emphasis on being green. Actually, Singapore places a lot of emphasis on uh, trees everywhere and protecting the environment. And so having fewer cars, car light is also very important. And I think these townships truly represent what we would want from cities where the, the technology is there, but the focus is not on it, but it's very much about the lives of the people who are there. If we stick to this narrative for all cities, then I think we look towards a future where even though we have flying cars, even though we have a lot more security and IoT and other things like that, we also have this importance given to in every individual as well. And I hope that that's the kind of the lesson that we can take from it. I hope Singapore continues on that path as well. How do we do it without forcing it down people's throats? I know I went to Singapore and it was a very interesting yeah. city, but I remember there were almost little animated cartoons mm-hmm. and stickers basically saying, be a good boy, don't stand in front of the, the tram doors and things like that. How do you how do you do it without ultimately... I mean, I could you could fix obesity in the U.S. You just ban fast food, you ban soda, you ban some other stupid things that people consume that they shouldn't, but they enjoy too. How do you do it without playing dictator, I guess? I mean, I think that asking people or, or and I don't know which, what you're talking about in, in particular in terms of being good or being a good boy, I, I didn't notice that myself. Here's what I noticed. I noticed that the streetlights have been changed. And if you're an elderly person, there's a button that you can press and there you get more time to cross the road. I notice when I'm walking that the sidewalks are being uh, kind of reconstructed. And even though it's an inconvenience to middle-aged people, actually they're making gray sidewalks so that the elderly who walk more slowly have more space to walk because they don't drive as much. So, uh, you know, I could say, look, they're kind of shoving it down my throat. I would rather cross that road really fast. And whether they have a cute cartoon next to it or not, I didn't see one. You know, that's kind of besides the point. I think that actually some of these things are done keeping certain ways of living in civil society in place. And I think that's important. When it comes to things like discouraging people from eating certain kinds of food, we, you know, there are many levers that policy can can do. Obviously, we've done that with cigarette smoking. I think when it becomes a real threat to people, uh, you know, you increase the price, you increase the taxation. But I think that that's, I don't feel it as a dictatorship. I don't know when you visited or the last time you visited, 
but maybe it's worth coming again and having a look. But what I do notice is that there are things that are done that overall are done for maybe a different sect of society that that may not be your segment. But is it important for living in harmony as a country? Oh, no, I didn't think it was bad. I thought it was a very subtle okay. way of doing it. But it was just uh, it was just so different than anywhere else I'd seen in the world by by some of the like there were signs by, on the urinals that said step a little closer, buddy. It's probably shorter than you think. And it showed, <laughs> it showed a little cartoon boy. And they're just funny little things like that that yeah. I saw. I saw almost everywhere that was interesting. What um, what do you think is the future of transportation of transit? I know we we spent some time in Atlanta recently, and you see these Lyft and Bird scooters everywhere, and they seem to be they seem to be taking off in the U.S. literally because there's not much public transit. But other places like Singapore have incredible systems in place. Where do you see the future playing out for transportation? Well, I think first of all, um, transportation. The reason, the one of the things we really need to do is kind of intermodal transportation. So, and my PhD is on this topic, where you are trying to, you know, re- obviously we want to reduce private ownership of cars because of the effects on climate change. So then we want to basically have renewable energy powering our different modes of transportation because otherwise it kind of defeats the purpose. Now, the key then is that why do people own cars? And often we find that the reason they own cars, especially in the developing world, is a, of course, a status symbol. But even more than that, because millennials and younger people don't even consider it such a status symbol anymore. It's because of the first mile and the, and the last mile problem. And the first mile and the last mile problem is the number one reason why people, they don't want to walk towards the bus station and then get off and have to walk off or wait for a taxi. So we're going to see more uh, intermodal apps where the journey from A to Z is completely mapped and automated and routed and optimized by your transport agent or assistant in your phone. We implemented something like that for SMRT, the largest public transportation company here. And of course, there's a company called WIM and others that are out there as well. So I think that's the first thing we'll see, where we'll see the entire ecosystem of transportation options not being available on different apps, but on one app, like kind of a marketplace of transportation like Amazon or iTunes. And whoever uh, comes up with that, I think would find it quite useful. Um, the other thing, of course, that we'll see is we'll see uh, increasing more variety of uh, personal scooters, personal mobility vehicles, flying taxis, where appropriate, etc. Uh, and the third thing is that we always need to make sure that whatever we introduce, we look at its ramifications. So for example, in Singapore, uh, and in many countries, of course, in China, everywhere else, we've seen that bike sharing, which seemed like such a good idea in the beginning, became a bit of a problem because you had strewn bikes everywhere. And in Singapore, one of the things that they're looking at is that when you walk, you put scooters on the sidewalks, you know, depending on the age of the person, et cetera, they can be very fast. And if somebody's riding them very fast, and there are many of them, then you have this issue of safety on the sidewalk, especially in an aging population. So then you have to consider, do we have the right infrastructure for it? How wide should it be? What should be the regulation around it? And so everything, again, seems exciting and futuristic. But as you know, and all of us in technology know, we always have to look at its ramifications. And I think the, the future of transportation is all this. It's, it's less ownership. It's more electric, electric, uh, vehicles. It's more different kinds of vehicles. It's more intermodal optimization, but it's also constantly looking at governance. And this also applies to the data that people are collecting 
as you're moving around the city, it's one of the most powerful forms of data is an, an indicative of your behavior and your proclivities. And so we need to make sure that that is also protected. Or at least we as individuals have access to our own data at a minimum. And so this system will inevitably be a bit different based off of every city because every city has different layouts, different existing infrastructure, et cetera. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's a no-brainer. Uh, but I think that the, so I agree with you there, but I think the interesting thing in the developing world and also in, in the West is that because, you know, we spend so much time moving around the city, the, the mobility startup or company becomes very important to us and therefore can become many other things. And so now we're seeing that Kareem in South Asia and in Saudi are, is going to offer loans. And, and so is Gojek and Grab in Southeast Asia. And Uber might, I think, is doing it or would do it as well. So what we find is that companies, these transportation is a number one pain point in city, full stop. And so whoever is owns transportation or has a piece of it has and ha, is is with you much of the day and therefore has great insights into you and can provide you many other services as well. So I think we will really see these companies coming up as uh, even bigger behemoths than they are right now, like really as conglomerates in the future. Would you predict that the transportation, we can call it a transportation revolution, that that's coming both with autonomous vehicles, with scooters, with a lot of the stuff we've been talking about? Do you think that'll lead to more people li living in cities or more people living outside and coming in whether or not whether they need to? You know, people come to cities because of many different reasons. And, and transport is not... It, it, it is a deterrent, uh, but it definitely is not the main reason that stops them. People go like hours into cities, you know, and, you know, we've integrated with autonomous vehicles, our apps over here. And we definitely see that in places like Singapore, where we're already experimenting with autonomous vehicles or on other places, it will make, uh, or on highways, it will make transportation safer. It will make it faster. It will make it more efficient, but it will not reduce the attraction of cities. Uh, what will happen is that cities, people come to cities because of the education, healthcare, economic infrastructure, culture, all of these different features of cities are attracting more and more people, especially in the developing world, in Asia and Latin America and Africa. And what we see is that the, there's an urban sprawl happening as these cities kind of spread out. And the transportation then becomes very important, not only for getting into the city, but for intercity mobility as well. Um, and you see in some places like Jakarta that people literally will, instead of hailing a cab, they'll hail a motorbike and just hop on it and get to where they want to go. So people are being very innovative with how they're moving around the city with the help of technology, of course. So it's this, there's a, there's the revolution in the me mode of transportation, such as, um, you know, autonomous vehicles, drone taxis, et cetera. But then there's also a revolution in the business model and also how we access that transportation. And there also is when it comes to jobs and what the jobs of the future will be. I know you've talked about this a bit before in terms of how education is changing, how AI is shifting that and where you see us headed in terms of the jobs and economy for jobs to be done, etc. Can you talk a little bit more about how you think through these issues and what potential directions you see us headed towards? Yeah, for me, I think the most important thing is that are we preparing ourselves? And this is as relevant to us at this age as it is to our children. And for anybody, are we 
Are we prepared for the fact that jobs are going to be different, that there's going to be more automation in them, and that we will constantly have to learn how to work with machines? And not only work with machines, but learn to work with the people who set those machines up. So essentially, before there used to be, the, the, the future team is actually quite diverse. The people, human beings are very important to it because of their own domain expertise, because of their empathy, their ability to connect the dots, because of their creativity. But then we have two other people in non-tech domains that are now important. One is we have the AI engineers, the IoT experts, the data architects, the roboticists, because they're the ones designing the machines that are going to automate a lot of the workflows. So whether it is manufacturing or transportation or legal or anything else, uh, you know, we will find ourselves relying a lot on machines and on the individuals, the tech individuals who make those machines and models for us. So I think that what we need to learn is not that all of us should become coders, but that we should understand enough of it so that we can partner with the right people to build the products and services of the future. And we need to learn the basics of coding also to, as individuals, to empower ourselves to have agency vis-a-vis the technology so that we can probe it, we can inquire about its biases, that we can be confident that we don't, that we are still very worthy and marketable, even though we are not uh, coders or engineers, but that we have the confidence to build something and to question something that, quote unquote, a machine came up with that was modeled by human beings. So what I recommend to everyone is, in terms of basic education, learning the basics of computing is as important as reading, writing, learning math. And then for the people who are teenagers, I think it is important for them to understand artificial intelligence um, so that they are able to understand the basics of how it works. We are actually, I have a charity in Singapore called 21C Girls, and we are teaching girls the basics of AI. And half of them come from a tech background and half of them come from a business background. And this is to show them that both of you guys need to know enough so that you can go and get your jobs or start your own companies or do whatever you want to do. And where we have a pilot going on right now and our aim is to educate 1,000 girls a year and, and more in Singapore and make it a real movement for Singaporean girls to learn this and not lose their confidence. Which is a really impressive aim given there's only there's only around 6 million people in Singapore. Yeah, I think right? that's why it's doable. <laughs> that's it's, why it's, yeah, it's doable, hopefully. but it's also a, it's a big enough percentage to matter at that point as well. Yeah, it's I mean, a, I, yes, I, I feel really, really, really strongly about this. And the girls are amazing, Matt. They're just like full of energy and they have ideas and... You know, they're really trying to understand and they're coding and some of them know they're not going to be coders, but they really see that it's worth it. And we talk about role models and we just the other day we had a great discussion about kind of inverse privacy, which is this new, this concept that some Microsoft researchers put together and uh, that is kind of making the rounds and the importance of having access to one's own personal information. You see, education related to technology is not just about the technique. In fact, it is much more about the relationship we have with it, which means we have to have some kind of proactive relationship with it instead of passive one. And it's also about knowing how the values that we associate with it. So I think those are the, the things that make an education complete. So just doing a coding course is not what I mean by um, by that. And the other thing I think that's important is that for mid-career people, I hope more and more courses come out, such as a course that I recently was invited to participate in with, with really great people. And it was about uh, AI and finance. 
And I gave a kind of a layman's introduction to artificial intelligence. But then the rest of the course, which is online, was really about how is it relevant to bankers? So they went through how is AI used for wealth management and how can AI help in anti-money laundering? And I hope that I find that the feedback has been that that course is very useful and empowering for people who are bankers, but realize they're being disruptive, but now can actually imagine their own future in a new world of fintech. And I think if we could have more education like that, that's really addressing domains, then people would not be scared. They would actually look at it as a glass half full instead of half empty, maybe even more than half full because they could do so much more with it. So that, that's what I hope, basically. Well, it's like a language. If you learn a little bit of Spanish or German or whatever it is, before you go visit the country, right. you can actively try to pick it up. You can try to assimilate and learn, and it's enjoyable. If you go and you know nothing, you feel like an idiot. You can't even wrap your mind around trying, and you feel lost for any type of any type of attempt. It's very similar. You've got to know enough to be dangerous. <laughs> I love that. You're totally right. And I think it's the same curiosity in human beings the same sense of adventure that we sub sometimes lose as we grow older, which is, yeah, I want to go to a new country and I want to experiment. I want to see. It's just that so much is at stake when it's our employment that I totally understand. And that's why we need to give people the time, the support to learn. You know? I wanted to take a quick time out to tell you guys about today's show sponsor, Carta. As a founder, investor, or startup employee, you know that most of the wealth in the tech industry, it comes from equity. It's not from salary. But how you manage equity, how we manage equity, it's broken. It can be complicated to figure out who owns how much of a startup and to share that important information and documents between companies and VCs. And for VCs to see how investments are performing real time, that's incredibly important for raising your next fund. Many investors and companies still use spreadsheets, paper certificates, and slow-moving service providers to keep that kind of information on hand and to share with prospective investors. These tools and services that are used to manage equity, they're dated, they're slow, and it's funny given that VCs and CEOs are the ones creating the future. Picarda fixes the cap table equity management problem. They offer cap table management, valuations, full-service fund administration, all in one platform. More than 600,000 employee shareholders from companies and VCs at firms like Slack, Coinbase, Flexport, August Capital, Founders Fund, all these guys and more, they use Carta to manage hundreds of billions of dollars in equity. To simplify how you manage equity, use Carta. Get 10% off today at carta.com slash syndicate. It'll help you with simplifying the cap table, which will make it easier for you to raise money as a startup and easier for investors to get on board. Carta.com slash syndicate. Singapore has an interesting program about continued education, something mm. about $500. Right. So the Singapore government gives $500 to all its citizens who have completed college or over the age of 25 so that they can take from a list of hundreds of accredited courses. And, um, and this is there to encourage people to become lifelong learners. And what is really important to note here is that they did not insist that people take robotics or AI or coding. They pretty much said, you know, you can take whatever you want. And I believe they're right because the logic here is you cannot succeed in life or be happy or find meaning in your work unless you pursue your passion. And when you pursue, so pick what you love and work hard at it. And it is inevitable, in my opinion, that whatever you do, you will run into the need for technology and data and maybe AI and robotics or whatever is relevant to your field. And when you do, you will have gotten in the habit of learning new things. So you will learn a little bit and you will go and find the people you need to partner with. And that's the right approach, basically, to do it in context of something you love. Otherwise, it 
doesn't make sense. The, the dots don't connect in, in most people's minds. And then they remain unmotivated and scared. That's why I hope we can have more courses, more projects, more meetups about this. And we are seeing that, which is in context of what people care about. And then it starts to make sense. Well, not only that, but it allows people to try and do something interesting. Mm-hmm. Essentially, I'm of the belief that if you stop learning, you start dying. And most people, when they come through and they finish high school or finish college or whatever it is, the majority don't even pick up a book after that. Mm. So that's that's not a great standard to be building towards. But suddenly, if you see, even if it is a cooking class, it is something completely different. It just opens up your, it opens up the spectrum of, hey, that wasn't so hard. Maybe I want to try something else too. Yeah, I totally agree. And you know what happens is that people are under pressure. They have mortgages to pay. Um, they have jobs. I mean, you know, I, I really like to always start with trying to understand, like, what are the, what are people feeling and, and how can we kind of help them unlock something? And I think some of the best things that happened, and it's also partly thanks to AI and what it allows you to do, is these online courses that are just so great. You don't have to do the homework, but you can just listen into them or podcasts. And they're all really, really, I find people are really inspired by them. And it's, um, I think it's a great start. It's way better than the news in public radio. That's for sure. <laughs> what, uh, what areas are you most worried about these days? It could be technology, could be regions, could be anything. No, it's, it's really for me, I think I'm a kind of an activist in that sense. It, I really believe that people deserve to know that we must educate people in, in what disruptions are coming and, uh, give them the basics of this. And what, what scares me or what worries me is that if they don't know, then they're afraid. When they're afraid, then they become passive. When they become passive, it's kind of a vicious circle. And then they treat AI and these technologies as black boxes. And once you start doing that, you are giving away power to people who own those black boxes and design those black boxes. And I think that's just a very dangerous path for us to go down. We need to demand transparency, even when it's hard. We need to demand governance, but not in a slacktivist way. So I'm not a big fan of, you know, people who just complain or or actively want something without understanding even what they're asking for. I think it's worth it for them to take some time and, and read some magazines or listen to some podcasts or take some course. And I really try to push people for that, that no matter what your age or your background, some things like AI or, you know, technology or the basics intuitive field for it is so important to your own, you know, sense, emotional confidence and economic security that you should learn some. And it worries me when people don't. If you had to remove one or two conventional classes from traditional high school and add one or two, what would you do and why? So I think that I would make things, and it's very difficult to do this, to be honest. I wouldn't remove classes. I would remove the silos, the fact that we study subjects as individual separate streams. And it would be much nicer if we did it in a project-based way. Now, that's so much easier said than done. And I and I totally understand that. But, you know, there's a school called Quest to Learn, for instance, in New York. And they, they try to teach technology and they try to teach different aspects of learning and problem solving and complex challenges. And they learn all the physics and the chemistry and the math they require as they solve it. And I'm a big fan of that concept, but there are very few schools like that. I think it's very hard to do that. Or, But if we could pivot to project-based learning and problem solving, kind of creative problem solving, then A, that's very exciting for kids. It's also challenging for kids. I, I don't believe in fun. I believe in play. And if you remember when you were a child and you played, 
parts of it were fun and parts of it were like kind of made you cry. But it was still a learning experience because you learn how to you know play with your class fellows and you learned certain rules of how to solve certain things and, and things that worked and you learned to tinker. And, and I think that the way it's set up right now with these rigid verticals and exams related to it, we kind of deaden all that creativity and love of learning and excitement over time within us. So that's what I would do. And I hope that somebody really awesome comes up with more of these schools and a group of people can actually help us pivot. My whole world is we're kind of in limbo because we don't know how to pivot properly to this this much better way of learning for, for the future that we're going towards. Yeah, we've designed a factory to put out factory workers in an yep. era where we won't have factories. It's troublesome to to say the least. What are, what are you most optimistic about technologies, re- regions, trends, etc.? I'm very optimistic about the 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 democratization of basic services. Um, for again, because my context is Asia, I tend to think a lot about that. I think about healthcare and how healthcare can be democratized through. Um, you know, telemedicine through designing smaller ultrasound machines, all of which is kind of happening right now, but will only improve through uh, AI algorithms, something that we did for a hospital, which was to predict uh, how many people are going to come up so you could reduce your queues so that you could serve people better. Like all of these ways in which technology can Im- immediately improve operations. And when you do that, you lower the cost, you improve the outcome, and especially you improve the outcome for the middle class or the emerging middle class or the poor people who didn't have access to it. I'm excited for all those people who will now be able to learn because education is becoming more free online. Udacity, I'm a huge fan of Udacity because it not only gives you courses at an affordable price, but it also connects you to a job at the end, which is very, very important for many people in Asia. And I'm also excited that people will be able to benefit really in incredible ways from that that is separate from this immediate digitization and AI benefit that we see in automation, but in terms of really, truly tackling big problems like cancer. Uh, You know, I have these kind of things really make me very sad. And I think that we have been struggling with this holy grail of solving problems like cancer, especially in children. My own mother passed away from cancer and she was an incredible person. And so I think that this, uh, this, this loss that we often suffer because that uh, of people close to us, uh, I think we can hopefully stem some of this loss and improve the quality of life of people in the future through some of the things that we can achieve through technology. So I'm very optimistic about both how we can improve the lives of the poor or the middle class and down the road what we can do for ourselves as a species. I think the cancer problem is very similar to the black box technology problem. You kind of lump all cancers in as one when pretty much every single one is is very different in how and why it forms. And it creates a problem that's in essence insolvable or whatever the proper terminology is for that because it is so many different it's like saying you died from pain well did you get hit by a car or did you have your heart break it, uh, it's complicated it, it is complicated and of course a lot of people have been studying protein folding and other things like that but i don't know if uh, i don't know i mean this is a big question right this is a big question ai as well is can we abstract away certain things or is it all just a lot of data that's different and we have to crunch through it. I don't know. I don't know the I, answer to these things, but I think we should um, at least attempt, continue our attempts. <laughs> I, I definitely. The, the one thing I see with AI is people think about it, they're, they're currently hammers and they say every problem is a nail. And okay. sometimes sometimes there are lots of different ways to do something. But when data is the only thing you have, you optimize towards 
what you believe to be the truth when you can't really see through the through the mess. I, I think there's probably five, six, ten, a hundred different causes. But uh, that's a that's a story for another another podcast. What I wanted to ask you about now is the last five, ten centuries, really at least, have been defined by Western dominance and influence. Mm. When will be the time when that flips and suddenly the East becomes the dominating driving force? Are we there yet? Is that ten years down the road? Fifty, a hundred? What do you see on the ground? I don't. I don't actually know who will become the dominating force. I think that what we will see is that there will be more of what people call multipolarity, where there will be many dominant forces in the world. And this time, there will be many of them from Asia and the East as well. Um, and we are already seeing, because the problems that we face in Asia are somewhat unique to us, we are going to start seeing some innovation. And we've already seen some innovation in China that that is then being adopted by um, the West. And so we see that in technology. Some people see that in governance. Some people see that in other things. And so what we will see is that it will emerge and continue to emerge. And Asia is not just one, right? There are like many, many different countries. And we will see interesting rise of thought leadership that will come in. Perhaps there will not be any one dominant player, but there will be many different important players, um, which is that direction that we are seeing. And I do see that there is still a lot of great stuff that comes out of the U.S., out of Europe. And I think that that's also very necessary. Hopefully, we can lead to more collaboration. So it's a win-win for all. Do you think we can have a peaceful multipolar situation? Or do you think that's something humanity may not be capable of? No, I think we can. I mean, I think I actually think that it's possible to have uh, to have balance of power between not just two, but multiple or net within networks as well. But of course, it really depends on what the, you know, what falls into the hands of of someone that's so dangerous that it tilts the power struggle. So I'm not an expert in, in geopolitics, but I think that there there's a lot of uncertainty. And from a technolo- technology perspective, I really hope that we can protect our critical infrastructure and we can protect ourselves from some of the core threats from that perspective that we see, especially in cybersecurity, but also in just like manipulation of individuals and so on and so forth. What do you think about the CRISPR babies that were born recently? I know Singapore is is pretty pretty far in in the lead when it comes to biotech. What do you see happening? I think there's a lot of conservatism when it comes to actually uh, doing things with human beings. I and I've only read what was in the media for the CRISPR babies. From from what I understand, they didn't even have any problem at all. I didn't quite understand why they were even operated on. And of course, very rightly so, there was no precedent for that in in um, in any trials or anything like that. So I think that that is that is very dangerous. You know, it's uh, it's always tricky. On the one hand, there's the argument that you have to move science forward. On the other hand, every individual matters, and that's what makes us human beings. And that's what brings is the humanity in each one of us. So I think that I think we have to be very careful. And um, it's very important for us to respect the fact that we cannot experiment with babies or adults or elderly without a proper precaution. And we really don't know the side effects of these things. And for those lovely children, we don't know when they grow up, uh, some of the ramifications they may have. Yeah, he, I mean, he definitely did the experiment to, to be famous and be the first. But at the same time... To be infamous. Like, to I be, really to be don't infamous. understand his motivation at all. Uh, you know, if I had done He's, that, yeah. I would have hidden it. But he was really out for the, I don't know, for what? For the Daily Mail. I don't know what he was out for. <laughs> or funded by someone rich that needed a, an out or funded by the Chinese or potentially just completely fraudulent. But uh, 
and wanting to wanting to make it look like things were happening, like the Huawei story. But it's uh, I think it's interesting because it with human nature, when it comes to the pureness of power and what defines us, is that something that we can kind of we can kind of dance around and say it's not ethical and we shouldn't have done this and yada yada. But is that something that will ever truly be a reason holding people back from trying to save their kids, trying to be smarter, trying to live longer? Does that make sense? Yeah, it absolutely makes sense. And if you look at our own history as a species, it's never kind of held us back, right? So there have been wars, there have been disputes, there's been genocide. And so, uh, so therefore, we have regulations and frameworks in place precisely for that, because there are some individuals that do not stop at that. And anyway, this is no one person has the power to move such an experiment forward, unless, as you said, there may be bazillionaires or something like that. So if this became, came on the market, I am sure many people would uh, take on various kinds of augmentation and uh, that, that one believes would not harm anybody else and would not harm their children. So this kind of advantage is very, the desire for advantage, the desire to survive in a competitive world is very Darwinian. And we have been going through this since the very beginning of our species evolution. So I, I agree with you that human nature is not so pure and pious and generous. And there, that is the reason there are some regulations and frameworks that we need to have in place. How do you think it can and should be regulated? So I know this is one of the areas that Singapore could be interesting in, in that it's small enough and nimble enough and seemingly tech savvy enough, whereas places like the US, they can't even ask Zuckerberg serious questions. But for, for countries, how should we think about regulating this? Because it is also, a, if you're a little bit too prudish, then all the technology and industry just goes somewhere else type deal. You know, Matt, this is the one, actually, I'm not very familiar with the history of regulation in biotech and bioscience. So I wouldn't be able to intelligently speak on this. Uh, I'm more familiar with some of the things that they, that countries are thinking about in terms of data. But I think this area is very important. But I, apart from kind of a layman's perspective on it, which would be very generic, I don't have a concrete insight into how countries are looking at it or should look at it or have looked at it and the mistakes they've made. But I do know that I'd be, I mean, I'd be surprised. I think almost all countries would be very cautious when it comes to experimenting with, uh, with their citizens' lives uh, through the use of some kind of bio enhancement or um, experimentation. I, I can't imagine any country really doing that without thinking of a regulatory way of addressing that problem. I definitely agree on the country side of things. It's, uh, I think we can agree certainly on one thing. It's an interesting future that, that we're headed towards. What, uh, what, what sites, what places do you look to? What do you read? What do you listen to? How do you stay informed up to date? What is Aisha's news media type schedule or system? Well, I always um, kind of read a lot of books in terms of some that are related to trends that are happening. I enjoyed Kai Fuli's book on AI, Silicon Valley versus China, but I also enjoyed uh, John Doerr's book, Measure What Matters, because that is very much about running a company. So I'm always trying to understand how to build a better culture, how to build something that is more interesting and valuable for our clients. Um, that's one stream of books. Another stream of books that I'm always looking at is kind of what are the, the trends in the world related to technology? And the third one is actually because I'm a mom, I'm always looking at um, kind of what is uh, what is important for for children and how do children learn. I'm not an expert on that, but I always want and I hope that they see math and statistics and computer science as 
kind of something beautiful and poetic instead of seeing it as, as mechanical and technical. And uh, so I'm always trying to spend some time with them and, and read some interesting things on the history of math or something like that. So those are, those are my main kind of books. And then for the news, I, even though, <laughs> I left New York like seven years ago. I'm still such a New Yorker. I need the, I read the New York Times. And then um, I have a lot of um, alerts from Axios, from TechCrunch, from um, Tech in Asia, which is a great one for keeping tabs on what's happening in Asia. And, and then I have a, you know, a really good Twitter feed uh, that I follow and people are always putting interesting things up. Um, especially I always find it interesting that people I follow who are in the AI space and they always put some papers or some interesting things that are happening and new concepts or um, new conferences where such things are being discussed and is always interesting for me to read. So there's a little bit of academic reading in there as well. I have one, two last questions before yeah. we start to wrap things up because okay. I know you're busy. So I know I know right now you're working with uh, the charity yes. uh, focused on getting essentially more girls involved and interested yes. in technology, computer science, AI. Do you see do you see the initiatives and movements that are happening now in the East or the West as being better in terms of trying to make a more diverse tech ecosystem? Essentially getting more women in tech. If you walk into a Silicon Valley boardroom, the vast majority are dudes. If we're just being honest Honest and blunt. Yeah. Do you think that's society? Do you think that? Do you think that's nurture nature? And how do we how do we combat or change that? Well, I think this has been such a um, such a powerful movement that we're seeing for not only women in tech, but women in media, women in journalism, uh, women in transport. Like women are really kind of emerging. They're saying that we are. And Glenn Close today was the Golden Globes, and she won for the wife. And she, in her speech, actually said that people expect us to be nurturers, and that's that's fine, but we also need to find our full potential. And I think that we're seeing so many more people talking about this. Now, obviously, it's going to take some time. In technology, in particular, the fact that there are not more people on the boards, and they're not all techies on the boards, you see, so that is to me, discrimination, because I think there are many qualified women out there. However, when you go out to hire engineers and you do not find enough engineers because A, they're not enough, and the percentage of women is lower, then the problem is not only discrimination, the problem is also education. And that is the particular problem that I'm trying to address. Because I think that we need to have more qualified women who are data scientists, AI engineers, machine learning engineers, cloud architects. And that once we have that, then there's a bigger pool to choose from. And we will, in, in a generation, begin to see the change. Obviously, in the U.S., we have some great movements. We have AI for All, uh, which was started by... Fei Lee from Google and Stanford. And then we have Girls Who Code or start by Rashma Sajani. And in the West and the East, we also have UN Women. We have lots in almost every country, rich or poor, you see lots of these groups coming together. So, you know, I hope that it, it's not quite there yet. It's, but I think that we'll see a generational shift. We'll see women more in technology than ever before because they are being given the opportunity. And more than that, they're being advocated for. Like people like me are going out and saying, we have a space where you can come and learn. And let's talk about your role models. And I hope that, um, in fact, I don't even, I not only hope, I'm convinced that will make a difference. I am as well. I think with the board positions and the, the conference type stuff, a lot yeah. of it can be hard. I know people that run podcasts and yeah. you'll see when they, when they try to get, when they try to get, um, women speakers to come on. Yeah. I'd ima imagine if you are one of the top women speakers and you have not one conference, but 300 oh. conferences a year trying to get you yeah. because you, you're one of the top women speakers. You, 
you get a little bit overwhelmed and actually want to have time to get shit done. It, um, yeah. it's, it's, a, it's a problem that I think we all definitely need to focus on. And I think it's one that people like you are doing a good job of addressing and also, not just complain and not just complaining about. <laughs> yeah, I think that's important for all of us is to kind of, you know, that's what I always say. I always tell people, I mean, you know, we all love to talk about ethics and transparency, but I challenge all of you the next time somebody comes to you and says, we're going to use that data for our personalized recommendation engine to have the guts to at least stand up and say, I don't think that's right. And I myself, like, have to say that. And whether that actually gets implemented or not, the first step that I actually said it and not didn't just say it in company or over a dinner table, I think that's important. We need to marry words with action. That, I think that's the only thing I've learned in all these years. That's the most important thing you can do. Yeah, you are what you accept and you tolerate. Aisha, one last question yes. for you now. And that is, if you had to leave listeners with one thing, it can be a quote, a call to action, anything, what would it be and why? My call to action to everyone would be, don't be afraid of AI. It is really here to amplify your potential. So if you could study it a little bit on Coursera or just on Udacity or Udemy or any of these courses, and if you can reach out and talk to people who are AI engineers, go to a meetup, you will feel more confident and that will really get your creative juices going and you could think of many ways, whether you're in a job or you're a student or you're a housewife or you're an entrepreneur or a house husband. Whatever you're doing, you will find that it will make the world a more interesting place for you and open up more doors and potential for you. But it really starts with you actively pursuing the desire to understand. I think that's a great place for us to start wrapping things up. You gotta, <laughs> you gotta, you, you gotta learn or, or you end up losing. What is the best place for people to find you, Aisha? So you can find me on my website, AishaKanna.com. I'm also on Twitter, AishaKanna1. And either one of them, you can send me a tweet or you can send me a message to my website. I'd be more than happy to hear from you. And of course, guys, we'll have links and all of that in the show notes, disruptors.fm. Make sure you hop over there, subscribe. And if you haven't already subscribed in iTunes, YouTube, etc., be sure to do that so you don't miss future episodes. Thanks for coming today, Aisha. This has been fun. Thanks so much, Matt. This was awesome. Yep. Take care. Cheers. You too. Thanks. Bye. Bye. If you want more of the Disruptors, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to disruptors.fm, where you'll find tons of audio and video interview stories with leaders in the fields of genetics, cryptocurrency, longevity, AI, space, VR, and much, much more. You can also follow me on Twitter at MattWardIO. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review on iTunes at disruptors.fm slash iTunes to help more people discover the podcast and help us make a bigger impact.